Welcome back to the Understanding Urbanism podcast. I'm Dallas Rogers. This is the podcast that accompanies the book of the same name, Understanding Urbanism, which is edited by me, Dallas Rogers, Adrian Keane, Tehran Alizahe, and Jacqueline Nelson. The book is published by Palgrave Macmillan, and it's great to have you along. In this episode, we'll be talking about Chapter 8, Public Cities. The chapter's written by Natalie Osborne and Tehran Alizahe, and I'm paraphrasing and quoting Natalie and Tehran in this episode. And we've already heard from Natalie. Yes, so I am Dr. Natalie Osborne. I'm a lecturer in urban and environmental planning at the Griffith School of Environment and Science um, in Mianjin, Brisbane. Like always, this podcast episode is an interpretation of Natalie and Tehran's work, so any errors are my own. And it's important to note that I recorded this episode on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation here in Sydney, Australia. My three key takeaways from this chapter are, first, it might be better to think about the public as a category that is made up of a collection of little publics in the plural. Second, these publics or groups of people are organised along racial, gendered, classed and other lines. And this is important for how we plan, design and build cities. And third, we often think that we're free to do as we please in public space. But public space is highly regulated, and even the most mundane activities can be prohibited in public space. You've written a chapter with Tehran Alizahe on public cities. Could you tell me what is the, the idea of the public and the idea of publics? Yeah, so that's that's one of those questions that seems on the face of it like it would have a really easy answer and it definitely doesn't. And we devote quite a bit of time in the chapter to, to try to work, work through it. There's a few different ways we can think about the public and it really comes down to, you know, our different kind of philosophical perspectives, even things like the kind of culture that we're raised in, the cities that we're accustomed to in terms of how we think about the public or indeed the idea that there might be multiple publics. So I guess the the original idea, original, you know, kind of Western sense is maybe this idea that the public is nothing more than a collection of individuals. So like an aggregate of individual autonomous units who are living together in some kind of space. And that comes back to to the kind of dominant idea in, in Western philosophy of liberalism, that, that emphasis on the individual as the political unit, as well as ideas about individualism as some kind of like moral good in and of themselves. Sorry, I was going to say maybe we could contrast that with another type of way of thinking about social organisation. And we've talked a lot in the textbook about Indigenous cultures and Aboriginal cultures. And maybe there's a different idea of how you put the individual and how you put people together into groups. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are, you know, I'm a settler academic, so I I don't want to speak for or on behalf of any Indigenous peoples, but th- there's definitely plenty of cultures around the world, both Indigenous in Indigenous um, so-called Australia, I guess, um, but but also lots of other places where people are defined primarily by their relations rather than a kind of 
individual bounded unit where, where people's identity is formed through their relationships to others and perhaps also their relationship to place. And the, their relationships to others might also be relations to to non-human others, to, to existing in community with different species as well of different people, both living and maybe those who have passed away as well. As So there's just, there's lots of different ways that people form a sense of identity. And so the emphasis on individualism is, is really something that those of us who sort of raised in a Western tradition have to learn to think critically about because we often just think that that's how it is, but really it's a philosophical tradition and therefore there's, there's actually many others that we could think about. And that actually might be more useful to us when we want to think about cities as a kind of collection of of publics, a collection of many, many different types of people. And that's always been one of the defining features of cities, that that kind of cosmopolitanism, that there's there's sites of diversity and difference. And so maybe it's helpful to have a different, to have at least a range of ways that we can think about how we constitute ourselves and and how we constitute ourselves in relationship to others. Mm. Let's talk a little bit more about this idea of public and making it into a plural publics. What is publics as an idea? So if we if we decide that at least part of how we form our identity as people is through relationships and through community and through maybe a variety of systems of belonging, it becomes maybe a little bit more useful to, to try and be aware of how these things can be multiple, right? And so maybe maybe a way to think about this that makes it a bit easier is to think about how many of us would identify as belonging to a range of different communities. We might belong to faith-based communities, university communities, academic communities, geographical communities, communities associated with hobbies and interests or aspects of our identity like our sexuality um, or our politics. So many of us would already have a kind of lived experience of belonging to many different types of communities. If we extend that to how we think about the public or the publics of of a city, then we begin to realise that actually every person out there probably has a set of kind of affiliations and connections. And instead of trying to see the public as this kind of fixed or homogenous entity, we begin to see it as something that is multiple, that contains conflicts and contains contradictions, and that you know, we can have identities that maybe don't always sit all that comfortably alongside each other, but we we hold them within ourselves anyway. And we can also start to think of the public as something that is open to change. So this unit that we call the public is not a static entity. It's not like there's a, a body out there that we say, okay, that's the public. I can go out and I can go and engage with it. I can know it. It's always moving. It's always shifting. The boundaries of it can change. We form new publics. We form new communities in response to events or, you know, for instance, in response to a crisis, sometimes new communities, new affinity groups kind of spring up. So for planners or urban theorists or urban scholars who are interested in thinking about how we engage effectively with the public, if we're thinking about it as one unit, then chances are we're going to only speak to, you know, maybe one type of person or one particular kind of interest group. We're not going to be thinking about the many different diverse ways people experience and inhabit the city. And we're certainly not going to be able to see who's missing from those conversations because we'll sort of think that one speaks for all when, of course, you know, of course we know that that's not true. Hmm. And in the chapter you write that publics are organised along gender, racial, class and other lines. How is this the case, firstly, and what is some of the problems or issues with this? 
One of the things that's really important to think about when it comes to questions of like belonging and identity, you know, these thing, notions wrapped up with how we think about community and the public is that sometimes those categories are produced for us. So sometimes the, the kind of parts of belonging or non-belonging, sometimes the things that we are grouped with is done by dominant political, social, economic, cultural forces. So we might have some some choices that we can make in who we affiliate with and how we affiliate and how we identify ourselves. But a huge part of community and a huge part of public is how others recognize you or see you you know who who owns you who takes credit for you who claims you and who's not willing to see or engage with you so when we when we're talking about all of these things you know we can talk about identity and we can talk about we can talk about that but we're also already kind of talking about the political and social structures that produce identity and that produce our experiences of identity so one classic example about this and and you know when I was writing this chapter with Tehran I you know did a lot of reading about other people who've who've written about publics and public cities and people really often go back to talking about ancient Greece and the agora. So this notion of, of this public space where true democracy and discourse happens, this public space through which citizenship is enacted. And, you know, often this is kind of lauded and talked about as, as a kind of democratic ideal, but it's super problematic because what it's leaving out is at the time who got to claim that citizenship and who got to exercise that citizenship, it wasn't for everyone. It was for it was for men and it was not for and and for people who were not slaves, right? Ancient Greece was not sort of participatory democracy in the sense that everyone could participate in it, who got to claim belonging, who got to claim being part of the public and who got to claim that kind of access to public space to use it for democratic purposes was defined a lot by who kind of counted as as a full person. And that wasn't everyone. And so that's might seem like an extreme example, but it's still definitely true today. So if we think about, for instance, how we know that our cities rely on, on migrants, for instance, right? Here in so-called Australia, migrants are you know, our cities wouldn't function without migrants. And yet they don't have full citizenship rights. There's a lot of rights and a lot of rights and benefits that you get if you're recognised as a citizen that are denied to them. Um, And the same is true of, for instance, incarcerated people. To go back to your question about how these things are formulated along gender, race and, and class and other lines of identity, is that to the extent that our social, political structures create particular structures of belonging and privilege and and whose voices we tend to hear those actually also apply spatially so those the system of sort of socio-spatial belonging um, is also complicated with things like thinking about you know who who feels like they do have the ability to speak up in public space whose voices tend to get heard whose voices tend to get marginalized who gets taken seriously whose ways of knowledge get taken seriously um, and of course all of this is playing out on on stolen land right on and so there's a huge set of racial politics of settler colonial politics that underpin even the even the beginning of thinking about citizenship publics and democracy here in so-called australia mm. and the built environment professions have a lot a lot of impact in this space they change the way we interact with the city, they change the way we interact with people in public space. Our land systems are managed by planning systems and they shape who lives where 
and who is dispossessed of certain lands. How is the built environment professions kind of implicated in the construction of publics and how we interact with people and how we feel we belong or don't belong into in the city? This is such an interesting and, and complicated question because there are, I mean, there are so many different types of publics. And so the way that the built environment profession and professionals impact it really depends on how that community is kind of being formed or how that public organises. So for instance, we might think about something like faith groups as, as a really important part of community. But of course, places of worship have to be planned for. And there's a whole set of decisions that get made about the siting of particular places of worship, for instance, and a whole heap of politics and controversy that goes into what gets put where. And, you know, it I don't think will we'll come as a huge surprise that, that a lot of those conversations are also deeply racialized about what, what religions we're willing to make room for and what we're not willing to make room for. And so, you know, we have things like mosques in, in incredibly inaccessible areas on the outskirts of cities, maybe in industrial warehouse type districts with very limited access to public transport. So already we're setting up a set of barriers for people who might want to participate and be part of that community because all of a sudden it's actually just really hard to access the physical site that would bring you together with with the people um, that you identify with or would like to identify with. We can also see that playing out in things like public space. And this is this is one of the, I think, a huge tension and one of the things that I'm really interested in is how public space in cities is beleaguered and beset by a whole range of forces that make it really difficult for people to actually just come together. If you want to do something like throw a free gig in a public park, if you want to do that legally with with all associated permissions, it's incredibly difficult. Like it will take a lot of know-how and weeks of planning to do something like be able to, you know, throw a gig in a public park. And I'm sure most of us would think, well, gee, that seems like a pretty nice thing. It seems like a great part of living in cities, right? You know, access to live music and culture and coming together in space. But it's really difficult. Public space is is fraught. It's tightly controlled. It's tightly policed. So different users and uses of public space are treated really differently. One of the key trends we're seeing in public space at the moment is it's being increasingly commodified. So one example that that's maybe a little bit controversial is alfresco dining. Lots of people like alfresco dining. You know, I live in a subtropical city. It's nice to eat outside and people watch and and whatever. But alfresco dining happens on public footpaths. And all of a sudden that public footpath is now not totally available to the public. It's now you've got to be spending money in order to, to be there. And now that business owner can, if they decide they don't want you there, they can call the police on you. That threat is not equally distributed, you know. And so what we see is what we see in areas that are where, where public space is being eroded in these ways, where parks are being maybe more tightly controlled, where there's more space given over to commercial entities through alfresco dining or through advertising space or whatever else it is, is we also start to see the increased use of things like move-on orders and public nuisance fines and things like that that are disproportionately targeted at, for instance, homeless people, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, uh, people maybe with um, with mental disabilities of some kind. You know, they, they get targeted by these laws And so, you know, a huge part of what the built environment profession needs to be thinking about is when they're creating spaces for the public, what public, seriously, like what public is going to feel safe, which publics are going to feel like they can participate meaningfully in that space, and who are you giving a say in how that space gets designed and used and for what? Mm. 
One of the things we ask students to do is to go out into the city and to read the landscape for various aspects of the city, maybe economies in the city or how the planning system has affected the city. What advice would you give a student to go out to the city to read the landscape for different publics in the city? Mm. Um, that's, a, that's a great task. I think there's, there's a range of things you can do. I mean, it's certainly fun to, we call it people watching because that's less creepy than stalking but you can um, even going to to public spaces but maybe especially public spaces that have recently been redone or redesigned like so a, a public space that's recently undergone some kind of revival or or um, renewal process renovation and watch how people are using that space who's walking through it and not really pausing and stopping who's spending time there in what kind of groups are they spending time are people spending time alone are they meeting up with others what are they doing are they chatting are they reading are they listening to music like what what, what are what are people doing when they occupy that space and pay attention to absence try and have a think about who's not there who aren't you seeing both in terms of what kinds of people are you not seeing but also have a think about what kind of uses of the space you're not seeing because I think if, if we, it might even be worth spending some time brainstorming and thinking about what are the possible uses of public space in the city, what, what might ideally we, we think it should be being used for. And then try and ground truth that and see if that's actually happening. Because I think you'll find that a lot of how we talk about public space um, sort of in theory or in these utopian idealised ways is that they're these spaces for public discourse, you know. Whether or not that's actually happening, you know, is 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 pretty unlikely, and and that's because you know often if you want to do something like have a conversation with a large group of people in a public space, you are going to need a permit from the council to do that. So, uh, yeah, I would go and I'd pay attention to absence and pay attention to what uses and users are not there. If any of your students are of the more, you know, uh, maybe we've got some artistic folks in the room, um, some performance artists. One really fantastic way that we can show the norm, where we can kind of reveal the norms of public space and, and some of the hidden rules about it, is to simply act differently in public space. Go and do something weird. One of my dearest friends, Ollie, does this great thing where he just sets up a tea stall and gives people free tea in public space. And that suddenly becomes a radical act because he's resisting these processes of commodification of public space, commodification of urban space by just giving something away for free to nourish people and to try and encourage people to connect with each other. It's just one tiny example, but um, sometimes doing something that maybe doesn't seem all that subversive, but is just a maybe non-usual use of public space, if it's safe for you to do that, and, and again, that safety is not guaranteed for some of us, that can be a really interesting way to learn about what's, what's allowed, the unspoken mm. rules of public space. Chris Gibson and I were doing a project down here in Sydney on Barangaroo, the big crown slash lend-lease development, and there is a semi-autonomous state government body that controls that space, and so I put my headphones on, I had my audio gear and microphone, I went down there and I just started interviewing Chris in public space, and literally in 15 seconds we had security there asking us what, we, what are we doing? and telling us we couldn't do this, we couldn't use this space for commercial activities. And we had a discussion about, you know, that we're not, we're just academics, we're down here interviewing each other, and had an interesting discussion. So I, I like the idea of just acting weirdly in public space <laughs> as a way of testing the space, really, for how public it is and for which publics it is public. 
Yeah, absolutely. And here's the audio from our trip down to Barangaroo. How are you going? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The guy on the camera showing you the control. Oh, yeah. Do you have a permit yeah. or anything? Are you recording something? We're just researchers. We're just doing some interviews down here. Yeah. yeah. I, I, just for the reporting purposes. Well, it's an interview about because you've got to actually have a permit in the Barangaroo area too. Yeah, yeah. So we're academics and we do urban research, so we're just interviewing each other about this site. Oh, okay, yeah, that, yeah, that's right, yeah. that's right. As long as it's not yeah. commercial activity. Yeah, yeah. Oh, because no, you're not yeah, allowed yeah, to take yeah. commercial photographs and right, right, right. Okay. stuff like that in this okay. area. You can have around the corner, okay. across the road. So we're, right. we're not allowed in here? Well, or? from yes, here yeah. to Macquarie Tower, if yeah. you, I don't suppose you're doing, we'll find out if it's any drama what you're doing, but yeah, yeah. Okay. they've asked us to just approach and find out what what you're doing, you're doing yeah, yeah. commercials or doing like... No, we just work at the university. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're, sorry, just to be clear, so is this, this isn't public Waterman's space Key, this is, this is Barangaroo Delivery Air Authority. From uh, okay. Waterman's Key to Macquarie Tower, yep. up to Hickson Road. If you're across Hickson the road, road. Yeah, right. but if you're across Hickson Road on the other side... Yeah, that's, that's public not, space. That's the city council. Across right. this side of the road, Yep. Outside the Wild Oaks Cafe, the Wild okay, yep, Sage. Yep, yep. Outside that, that's Barangaroo. Okay. And in here, up to this line, if you're on that side of the fence, yep. I'm not sure whether they pass that, but if you're uh, okay. in here, they want to know you need a permit. Right, yep, To yep, actually yep. do filming. Yep, all right. Do like. Yeah, but that, that's, that's for commercial. Maybe how the category of public space almost doesn't make that much sense anymore because a lot of what we might think of as public space in cities or categorise as public space as built environment professionals is wrapped up in a whole heap of private interests as well, including even as, as far as private security. There's a similar spot in West End, a, a really controversial development site where, yeah, if you sort of set up to do anything, um, you can expect a visit from security and they, they might decide to let you keep doing the thing, but even that sense of being visited changes your experience of that space and makes you much more cautious about how you might use it and maybe changes your sense of whether or not you really belong there. Nat, so good to talk to you today. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Dallas. Thanks so much. 